Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to our Thursday 11s. Um, I'm going to, as I'm going to attempt this experiment of reading off of my phone to you, remind you at the same time to turn yours off. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I know that's a little bit of a contradiction, this dependency on it. <laughs> um, so as you can see, there's a couple handouts. There's some back by the door if you haven't gotten one. And I'd also like to remind you all that um, tomorrow is our faculty reading. So that's also at 11. It takes place during this space. But instead of a lecture sort of format, we have faculty come and you know, uh, read like about five minutes or so of their work. Um, and it's, it's always really wonderful. To draw is to sketch something out, to follow line and shape and contour, of course, but also to draw something is to pull it out and to bring it up and to wade down into the depths of the crap and the muck and to haul out in return a valuable chunk of the chaos. Or another way of imagining it might be that to make a picture is to use your hands to create a visual clue with which your eyes might identify what it is that your mind's been thinking. In today's 11s, Tim Bascom is here to demonstrate the ways in which verbal and visual representations of time, narrative, shape, and organization might clarify all of the forms our nonfiction attempts to take. Tim Bascom's memoir, Chameleon Days, An American Boyhood in Ethiopia, won the Bakeless Literary Prize. And his essays can be found in Boulevard, Fourth Genre, Image, The Christian Science Monitor, and the anthology's Best American Travel Writing, as well as Best Creative Nonfiction. So please join me in welcoming Tim Bascom. Okay. Can you hear me? Good, okay, since, since I'm using this thing because I'm gonna have to walk around a bit and point at things, um, thanks for that introduction. I like what you were saying about how a picture helps us to uh, you know, identify what we're thinking and, and that's why I'm trying this is to make sense myself of what I've been thinking a lot. Um, and I tend to be visual and do some artwork as well and this, this just seemed like fun so I got going and I couldn't stop. It's a good thing to do if you're in church and that and you're bored, you know, you start doodling on the bulletins, and this is what happens eventually. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, read to you an essay that I'm working on that tries to encapsulate uh, some of these main principles, and that'll take some of the time, and then maybe illustrate a bit from my own work and then open it up so that you can get engaged in talking about uh, whether these work for you or don't, or if you have some variation that you might recommend as well. So you might be thinking about your own pictures as we do this discussion. Um, so I'll just jump in, having said that. The march of time is methodical and inexorable. First this, then this, then this, all things weighted equally, no variation in pace. It is the ticking clock in the jail, or worse, the flat line of death. Many essays have succumbed to it due to an insistent attempt to record rather than shape. 
So we've got our flat line right over here and avoid it. <laughs> Narrative structure introduces a welcome change. It forces us into a climb, muscles contracting. It raises anticipation. Will we reach the top? And what will we see from there? And I like to put those question marks in there on that inverted check mark that we use for a plot because in essence I think tension is about questions, something not answered yet that has to be resolved. The exclamation mark at the peak is where there's a breaking point and then it falls off towards some, some sort of resolution. Take for illustration Joanne Beard's essay, The Fourth State of Matter, which is a narrative essay. The narrator, abandoned by her husband, is caring for a dying dog and going to work at a university office where an angry graduate student has purchased a gun. As a result, the movement through time has a pull-along power. It has suspense. Note, though, if Beard doesn't keep stair-stepping up the incline, if she flatlines on some emotional plateau, we may lose interest and walk away. This principle, by the way, was pointed out to me originally by the veteran essayist Bill Kittredge, who had in turn learned it from a screenwriter. To stay engaged, readers must feel that they are not being blocked as they move toward necessary change and the realization that accompanies it. So I've tried to illustrate that the stair steps can go up, 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 and then just end up holding too long and the reader walks away. For that matter, I suppose they could go up another step and then drop back down because we're obsessed with this emotional stage um, in the progression. One interesting side note, trauma, which is used as source material for so many personal essays, can easily trap an author on a single emotional step. Beard moves beyond that toward a kind of realization but I have seen less experienced writers who jog in place emotionally, like a young Ugandan who asked me to critique his memoir in progress. While the storyline showed promise in terms of sheer dramatic action, capturing intense moments from the Idi Amin era in Uganda, it kept falling back onto the same emotional plateau, the same plane, clutching at a kind of post-traumatic scar tissue. Have you maybe experienced that in something you've read or that you've tried to write? Set aside narrative though, because narrative is just one form of the essay. It's not the only mode. In fact, most essays are more topical or reflective, which means they don't move through time in a linear fashion like a short story. Philip Lopate quite helpfully describes the essayist as someone who circles a subject, wheeling and diving like a hawk. Unlike the academic essayist who begins with a thesis and aims it, arrow-like, at a predetermined bullseye, this less scientific writer meanders around the subject until arriving, often off to the side of what was expected. So I've tried to illustrate here that we have with the academic essay, the arrow pointed often in the, in the uh, form of a thesis. And we already know where this thing's headed, right? Now we just have to demonstrate. And then we, <whistles> and we've hit the bullseye and 
It works. I mean, it's, it's a good form, and it works for what it's for. But the essay is, too, is making an attempt. That's what the term means, is making a try at something. Meanders in and circles around until arriving, perhaps, somewhere not even quite expected, um, but at the heart of what has been explored. And what I like about this diagram particularly, which I think is kind of a bread and butter essay diagram, is that it helps you to see that as we are circling, we are seeing the same subject from different points of view. And some of them are closer and some are further away. And a good essay um, is going to provide multiple points of view or perspectives on the topic that's being considered. One of the benefits of such a looping approach is that it seems more organic, just like the mind's process. It also allows for a wider variety of perspectives, exploring the subject from multiple angles. A classic example would be Scott Russell Sanders' essay about an alcoholic father under the influence. As Sanders circles his father's drinking and, and the damage that it caused, he considers how alcoholism gets portrayed in films, how it compares to demon possession in the Bible, how it results in violence in other families that he has known, how it raises a need for control inside himself, and even how it is still influencing the next generation, his own son, because of his workaholic overcompensation. All of those are different perspectives around the same subject. Because of this natural ability to extrapolate, most essayists do not struggle to find something to write about. I want to know if that's true. How many of you here write a lot of essays? Do you have writer's block? How many have writer's block happen to you pretty often? Sometimes, yeah? Um, I think that essayists tend not to have it as much. I think we're just too full of whatever it is. Um, <laughs> Writer's block is not the problem since their minds overflow with remembered experiences and related ideas, while the short story writer must invent from scratch, adding and adding. The essayist demonstrates creativity by deleting and deleting. What isn't relevant? That's the question. The essay is a figure locked in stone, so what must be chiseled away? Certainly, one helpful way to begin this selective process is to think of the essay as a picture frame set down over a particular time and place, excluding all experiences that are not integrally related. Your personal lifeline marches through time in that same methodical tick-tock way that never ends, so you must focus on only the relevant portion. And I've tried to illustrate that with just a picture frame set down across that line of chronology that is your experience. And you want that to fall on the part that is necessary. Now, I know that there are going to be other parts outside of that frame that relate. And some of them will have to be pulled in, but only the ones that are relative to, uh, relevant to what is inside that frame. What appears in that limited frame, like any good painting, will have wholeness only if you are disciplined enough to remove what doesn't belong. 
The result may look like the inverted check mark of a narrative. What we'll find in there may be built like the plot line of a short story. Or instead, it might end up being more of this quarrel that we get with a reflective essay. But it has to be unified. Um, however, you will unify that material only by limiting it. You will give it wholeness by shading it as well, filtering it through the lens of your own unique perspective. So it's not only about framing, but it's about a voice that sounds consistent within that frame. Virginia Woolf's Street Haunting is a model for this essayistic framing and filtering. She creates her frame by limiting the essay to a single evening walk in London, presumably to buy a pencil. How many of you have read Street Haunting? This is a great essay. You've got to read it sometime. This woman is the goddess of nonfiction. Um, I suspect Wolf's essay combines incidents from numerous walks in numerous places. That's my own suspicion. But no matter, it feels brought together by the imposed limits of time and place, London and buying a pencil. It also feels wonderfully unified by Wolf's very manner of seeing. A close read will reveal that there are over 31, refer there are 31 references that I found to eyes or to vision, synonyms thereof, which ought to be sufficient proof that this essay, though it seems to be a random ramble at night on the streets, is really about one consistent subject, the nature of perception. I think Wolf's essay is actually a kind of prototype for a form that has become more popular today, the segmented essay. Although street haunting is not broken into discrete units separated by white space, it feels very episodic. Once we remove the supposed arc of purpose, the journey to find a pencil, it falls neatly into a set of separate scenes with related reveries. Today, essayists tend to feel more free to let go of the need for an artificial storyline, the journey to buy a pencil, collecting instead their disparate scenes into a segmented uh, model that is united by the thinnest of thread-like themes. Will Baker, for instance, has an essay you might have read which relies on nothing but a title and section headings to give us why it's all being brought together. The title is my children explain the big issues. Then we get a little anecdote about a toddler walking in the farm towards a water tank and falling down on her bottom. That's it. And that is titled Feminism. <laughs> she, when he reaches down to help her, wipes off her diaper and says, I can do it, Daddy. And then we go to another scene. And that next scene is titled Fate. And then we go to another scene and it's titled Existentialism. And the last one is titled East and West. And it's an older daughter and he's remembering her at a party, refusing the advice of a young man who's talking to her, sitting cross-legged. I think there's marijuana being smoked in the background. It's, it's a hippie sort of thing happening. Um, but each of them is linked into this uh, segmented collection by this very thin thread given to us through the labels on 
those segments. Yes, each of his framed scenes is about a remembered moment with one of his children, but without those attached labels, we would not be able to unify the whole. The titles give us a way to string the parts together, creating a kind of beaded necklace. And you can see up here the beaded necklace and how it's structured. This is simply the thematic thin thread that's holding them together. This attention to thematic unity brings up another important dynamic in creative nonfiction. Not only do we have a horizontal movement through time, but a vertical descent into meaning. I like to think of the two in relationship to each other. As a result, essays will often seem to pause in their forward motion through time to dip down into what I might call a thematic well of some sort. And I'm trying to demonstrate that here by showing you the drop that can occur in the storyline. Sometimes those descents will be quite expository. Contrary to the oft-repeated maxim of high school writing teachers, show, don't tell, the essayist is free to both show and tell. In fact, I once heard the nonfiction writer Adam Hochschild, it was here in fact, scold a group of MFA students for being so concerned about being subtle that they left out critical signposts. Don't be so afraid to say what you mean, he counseled. Although such expository departures with their delaying impact on the forward motion of the story may feel unwelcome, seeming to loop back on themselves, if they are handled correctly, they can also be the most important part of the essay, a kind of subtext that signals the vital meaning of the whole essay. And I've tried to illustrate that with a related diagram that shows how these dips can feel kind of like they loop on themselves and they're pulling us out of the story, and yet there is, through all of them, a kind of connected thematic unity that's occurring. And sometimes it is, like I said, very expository, it's being told to you, but it's helping you to understand what this piece is about and to bring it all together. Wendell Berry's nature essay, An Entrance to the Woods, employs several of these apparent digressions. At one point in the middle of his quiet account of an overnight camping trip, he notices the distant roar of cars on a highway and that out-of-place sound, which we would not normally give attention to in a nature essay, leads him on a particularly long tangent. He describes how the great, quote, ocean of silence has been replaced by an ocean of engine noise in which silence occurs only sporadically and at wide intervals. He imagines, quote, the machine of human history, a huge flywheel building speed until finally the force of its whirling will break it in pieces and the world with it. And the reader realizes what appeared to be an unnecessary tangent is actually a vital drop into one of those thematic wells. This digression confirms the central thrust of the whole essay, which is not about hiking or setting up a tent at all, but about the fragile nature of nature. 
So far we've looked at narrative, reflective, and segmented essays, but we still haven't exhausted the structural possibilities, and you never will with the essay, because so many of these are going to end up being uh, used in a kind of amalgam. You're going to use several of these devices. Um, many essays, though, are braided. That's another form I'd like to look at. I guess I have to start erasing and drawing here. Um, a braided essay brings together two or more strands of storyline in an interactive fashion. Judith Ortiz Kofer, in her personal meditation, Silent Dancing, creates a particularly revelatory braid from two strands, a home movie that is juxtaposed against her own memories of childhood as a Puerto Rican in New Jersey. To help the reader with transitions, she brackets the home movie with white space putting the text into italics. For a while, we look only at the old movie, then her memories, then the movie, then her memories, then the movie. Got the idea? And uh, the way I would illustrate it is on the sheet that you've got, but I'll put it up here. And the fact is, it doesn't have to be limited to just two braids. Um, Today, an even more fashionable form is the lyrical essay, which also depends on layering, only doing it in a less systematic way. Like the lyrical poem from which it drives its name, the lyrical essay is devoted more to mood than concept. It is there to be experienced, not thought about. And like many poems, it accomplishes this overall effect by layering images without regard to narrative order. A lyrical essay, in my opinion, is a series of waves on the shore cresting one after the other. It is one impression after another, unified by tone. And it seems to move in its own way, neither vertical nor horizontal, more slant. So I've given you an illustration for that that looks like waves. I'm going to employ color for the first time here. I'm going into a new dimension. But we've got our uh, pink wave. We're going to put in our blue wave. And we're going to go, where's my green? The little green one. I like the idea of being able to put those in simply because um, these different waves may feel different, and yet they're going they're to ha have to be both different and the same. Uh, and they are the same in at least shape. You've got that kind of wave-like shape there, right, being repeated. 
and yet the color would suggest a difference. So I think there has to be both unity and difference within those waves. And I like the idea of them moving slant um, because there's a kind of sideways thinking that happens um, with poetry and I think also with the lyric essay that defies just rational thought sometimes and yet is so powerful, so evocative. Uh, want a whole book of lyrical nonfiction? Again, you can argue with me about some of these, but in my opinion, um, Michael Ondaatje's Running in the Family would be a good example of a whole book that feels like a lyrical poem. It has a loose narrative superstructure, but it reads like an extended prose poem or a group of poems moving toward a cumulative effect. To read Ondaatje's prose is to fall into it and swim or nearly drown, which actually happens to the narrator's grandmother by the end of the story. It's about him returning to Sri Lanka where his family uh, came from. He lives in Canada and he is getting the family history out and his own and discovering more about himself in the process. It's not just an intellectual exercise but a visceral encounter, more intuitive than rational. We either give up or give ourselves over to the floating sideways motion of the writing with its stacked imagery and its singing voice. Okay, so we arrive finally here at talking about conclusions, um, which is part of writing an essay. Every essay must end, but how? First of all, endings are related to beginnings. That's why so many essays seem to circle back to where they started. Annie Dillard, in her widely anthologized essay, Living Like Weasels, begins with a dried out weasel skull that's attached kind of like a pendant to the throat of a living eagle. It's evidence that the, e the weasel lost the battle and was actually eaten away except for its clamped jaws and its head. Then at the end of the essay, Dillard alludes to that skull again, stating, quote, I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it, limp, wherever it takes you. The effect of closing that ring, of course, is a sense of completion. So I've drawn for you uh, just a circle on your chart there to demonstrate. So we have a beginning spot right here then comes to closure, and I'm going to go from there and say, however, for Dillard's conclusion to feel truly satisfying, it must mimic life, which is never completely complete. In real life, there is always and then, even if it comes after we have died. So the best conclusions will also open up a bit at the end, suggesting the presence of the future at the same time that they are seeming to close. See how deftly Dillard accomplishes this effect by positing an imagined or a theoretical possibility, a way of life that she might eventually master or that we ourselves might learn to master. Quote, seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop 
Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds, and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. Yes, the essay has come full circle, but it also points away beyond itself to something still to be realized that might be possible. Does that make sense? And therefore, I like to think of it not only circling, but then opening out like a bag that is still has possible uh, ramifications, something to be added. One last note. The writing of an essay is its own odd journey in time neither straight nor linear nor particularly organized. The neat diagrams like we're doing here come later. I wish they came at the front. I wish we were all that brilliant, but we aren't. That inverted check mark of a structure or that spiraling quarrel will not be apparent until after a lengthy process of trial and error. A design professor from Denmark pictured this reality for me quite nicely. Actually, he was a student here a year ago in my class, and we were talking about this issue, and he said, here, let me show you the creative process. I figured, design professor, he did his whole PhD on making, how to design something. I said, he, he should know, he should know how this works. So here is his picture of the creative process, which hasn't been given to you. process, okay? In other words, it's a mess. We go in and we think we know where we're headed, and then we veer off, and we go up here, and then, crap, we're going the wrong direction, <laughs> right? And then we double back down, and we just, it's a tangle. But his point, I'll go ahead and read what I've got here. Though we always go into an essay with the notion of where it might be headed, we inevitably veer as we get new ideas or feel the need to adjust. Sometimes we even seem to go backwards, losing all direction. Nothing is wasted, though, says the design professor, because every bend in this process is helping us to arrive out here at the necessary form that we are going to discover through the writing. That's my experience. Again, some of you may be smarter than me, and you may know from the beginning, this is what I'm gonna do. Create a rated essay with a slight dab of, you know. <laughs> I, I don't do that, I just start writing, and, and I'm tangled up in it, and over time, I, I, I revert from what I thought I was gonna do and try something else, and then I keep some of that as I get down here, and by the time I'm done, there's an amalgam of stuff that's come out of it, and I've started to recognize what it is I'm trying to do. So I start to enhance the shape that is starting to emerge. The key thing here is why I think this kind of academic talk about the structure of an essay is important is that once you do start seeing some of the possibilities, then if you see it coming out in your piece, you can say, well, if that's what I'm doing, let's do more of it. Let's, let's figure out how to work it. How can we make it even more of a form, a structure, something that's sound, that won't fall down with the earthquake. How am I gonna build this thing? 
Certain readers grow frustrated with essays. They seem so random, so wandering, they complain. But the good essayist knows that patient readers will feel rewarded in the end if the essay mimics the mind in its own meandering. It's an illusion. It's more crafted than it seems. But it still should have some sense of the tangle, I think, as the person is reaching towards something. In fact, the best essays surprise even the writer. Haven't you experienced this? Those of you who write a lot of essays, you get in and you're like, oh, it's taking me somewhere else, and that's bothersome. But then you start realizing something you didn't know, and that's exciting. It's like that's what makes you want to write. So you continue, and in the end, your piece states something for us that you were surprised by. My theory is if you're surprised, then the reader's going to be surprised. And that's why this process is so important to it. In the end, we all hope that that process results in something that is enlightening in some way. So that's my like canned presentation. We can then go to some illustrations. Um, i trying to think in terms of time. I'll go ahead with just a couple illustrations. You keep thinking, though, about pictures you might add to this or adjustments. For me, when I, 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 and what I like to do here is to talk a little bit about how this can apply to a book-length project, not just an essay. So I'm working on a book now, and I've had a hell of a time trying to figure out what will be the scope of it. Um, I have this memoir that was mentioned that was published about my childhood in Ethiopia, and it ends with me as a nine-year-old. And uh, when I first worked on it, I wrote myself to about the age of 21. So all that stuff, as I jokingly say, went into the trunk of my car because I was afraid the house would burn down and then I'd lose it. So I put half of my life in the trunk of the car and I kept working on that, sh that shorter portion. That's that frame getting set down and me saying, I, I just can't get unity of time and place. I can't make it feel unified if I go further because we came back to America when I was nine and we lived in a small town for six years. And it, what does that have to do with Ethiopia and the way we were living there? Now I'm working on a second book because the fact is what happened later when we then returned to Ethiopia was even more dramatic than the earlier stuff. Um, we went back during a Marxist revolution. The Emperor Haile Selassie had been overthrown. I was a different person because I had been stabilized somewhat uh, after a lot of cultural transition and struggles with adjustment. And uh, well, how far was I going to go with this one? Um, my point is, I was saying earlier that when you're writing nonfiction, you've got to see what to delete. Most recently, I've had to go back to what I've written and say I have two chapters here that just don't belong. Um, an agent who made me really angry but was helpful in some sense um, got me to see that the way the thing begins just isn't going to work. And as I went back through it, I realized two chapters that I really kind of loved about a friend, Terry Whitzel. Um, and his, his way of life, quite different than my family way of life, didn't have much to do with what was going to be at the core of this story, which was 1977 in Ethiopia. We went back and were only there for a half year before we had to leave due to the war that was happening. There was a, a guerrilla war ongoing. There was a war with Eritrea, and Somalia was about to launch one against Ethiopia too. And we were in the middle of all this, um, and that was the core of the story, 
So the only thing that I am now keeping from the earlier chapters is any part that, yes, is set in Troy, Kansas, but can somehow echo against Ethiopia. And I'm weaving in braiding sometimes, like I have a chapter where I'm in Sunday school class, we're a missionary family, so that's important, and we're in, I'm in Sunday school and the teacher is talking about Moses, and I'm being through her discussion uh, made to think of the way life was back when I was a kid in Ethiopia, which is projecting forward as well. Um, people coming down off the mountains on donkeys for a big, uh, what is it when you, they're all coming to get baptized. They're all coming to have a revival, a revival, right? And, uh, and I can relate Moses to, uh, to that situation because the ministers would actually walk right out into this red silty water and baptize people and, and she's talking about the Red Sea and I'm thinking well I've actually seen this red water and these people are like biblical people they're wrapped in shamas which are these long white cloths and, and they're making their own rope and they're plowing with oxen so I'm trying to keep Ethiopia in there as we're moving towards it is what I'm saying and Terry Whistle didn't allow that so even though these chapters could stand alone even well, I think, they got to go. So they're out. So this is about framing. That's been important for me. Further into the book, I have a chapter, and again, uh, because we're a very religious family and a very religious subculture, I, as a kid even, had learned a practice of daily devotions. We get overseas. Um, my close friend from before ends up being my close friend again. Danny Coleman, and uh, the two of us launch our own Bible study at boarding school. And we bring my little brother and a friend down and hang out together doing this Bible study. I'm going to read just a little bit so you see how it's a scene and how I try to bring to the scene a little of that expository thematic stuff. Yes, we read the Bible and talked about our own interpretations, but we also slid into goofy discussions of little things we found weirdly interesting, like the word dross. You know the word dross from the Bible? It's the, it's the crap that gets burnt off from the gold. My nickname was Dross Lidge. Lidge is Amharic for boy, so I was the depressed boy, the crap boy. Dan was... Uh, Deslidge, which is Amharic for joy boy. You got it. And Dad, Dan would insist right after we had prayed that we had to play one of his phonograph albums as a closure to our Bible study, as if rock and roll was a necessary benediction. If my in my family, we rarely listen to anything other than placid instrumental music or an occasional rousing gospel song sung by a choir. The only popular lyrics that I knew were from soft rock tunes played ad nauseum on the loudspeakers at the swimming pool in Troy, Kansas. Songs like The Carpenter's Close to You or Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Dan's favorites, by contrast, were wild screaming stuff by Kiss or spooky pieces by Iron Butterfly. And I knew instinctively that my parents would not approve. In fact, Dan's own dad had threatened to throw his entire collection of albums down the outhouse pit, disturbed that when Dan played these records, he played them at the highest decibel he could get out of his handmade speakers while slashing at an invisible air guitar or stabbing an imaginary keyboard bent back at the waist for maximum ecstasy. 
This rowdy conclusion to our Bible study seemed almost blasphemous next to the absolute silence my parents kept every morning as they leafed through the filmy pages of their Bibles, staring through the picture window. As we listened to the pounding music, pouring over the record covers with voyeuristic fascination, I felt hot and guilty, doubly so because I had pulled my younger brother into this questionable activity. The kiss cover was especially unsettling. <laughs> All those men in black leather tonguing the air or spouting fire from their painted faces. How could I turn my attention to such wicked sensationalism when I knew the reverence that my parents brought to the scriptures or even worse, the death-defying loyalty of many Ethiopian Christians who had prized the scriptures at the risk of imprisonment or torture? How could I scream along with kiss when Waja, the dresser from Sodu, was now in a prison camp south of Addis, carefully hiding single pages of a Bible that had been torn up and left in the latrine for toilet paper, then giving those pages to fellow Christians so the words could be memorized and kept even if the guards took the paper. Yet there was no escaping the fact that the Kiss music did get me excited. A roaring engine introduced my favorite song with wheels squealing for traction. Get up, the singer commanded. Everybody's going to leave their feet. Get down. Everybody's going to leave their seat. Dan leapt onto his bed, legs spread wide, head arched back, etc. What I'm trying to get at is that I'm creating a scene, but you can hear in it, I hope, by me including a little uh, digression with this Ethiopian man that I'm trying to keep us on track thematically with Ethiopia, with the realities of what's happening there. In this case, a Marxist government that has decided that these converts, particularly attached to the missions, are suspect because they're with the imperialists from America, Britain, Australia, Canada. And therefore, they're burning churches down, taking them to jail, torturing them even. I then go to another chapter after this in which I am forced, at first I think it's an invitation, but I discover I am being forced to go to daily devotions with the kids in the dorm room that I'm staying in. And I don't like mornings. Some of you have learned that who are in my class because I'm a little loopy at first in the morning. And I'm going because I have chosen to. And I thought I was just invited. But I get tired. And I'm feeling like, I'm not going on this morning. I just can't do it. I can't get out of bed. And I do that a couple more times. And it's, it's kind of hard to get down there. And then I get a note on my pillow one day when I get back from school. And the note uh, says, Tim, I am saddened by your refusal to join the group for devotions in the morning. I had hoped it would not come to this, but I feel I cannot remain silent anymore since your rebellion affects not only you but the others in the dorm. Imagine how they feel when you persist in doing your own thing, disdaining the opportunity to, opportunity to start the day with Christ, and et cetera. Sincerely, Jack Maxson. Um, it's another scene. I'm just trying to show that whole chapters can become like those framed portions that have a thematic unity in between them. And another will come after when I am becoming overtly rebellious, even though in my quiet way, and going to a dance that would be outlawed by our mission and getting out on the floor with a girl whose father actually teaches Bible at the boarding school and shaking my hips. Um, 
So I'm trying to show that these things do apply, and uh, I'll stop there. Let's go ahead. What are some of the responses you have to different diagrams or anything you would like to add? And I'm quite serious about that. If somebody wants to come up and draw a picture, in fact, I'll just, let's start there. Two, three people who have a picture in mind, anybody who'd be willing to come up, be brave, come on. Two or three people, and just come up and start drawing, anybody? Anyone? All right, come on up. Anybody else? Nothing pornographic. That's the missionary kid in there. So we'll go ahead and raise. You can just go ahead and raise some of that. Jump in there. While they're drawing, we can talk. Um, anybody have something that you want to comment on, a question, or something you would add? Yeah. Oh. Right now, or? Well, I don't care. You get creative about how you want to make that available, but I'm very interested. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Tomorrow here, I could try to have a list that people could pick up if they want. So these are essays. They're kind of models of the different um, forms. Yeah. Okay. I can do that. Somebody else have something you want to ask or add? Yeah. creative nonfiction is. <laughs> is he messing with my
model, but let's say the literary universe has these four in it. I know drama's there too, but I, I failed to get it in, I'm sorry. Um, fiction, journalism, poetry, scholarship. We're always talking about creative nonfiction, which means we define it by what it's not. It's not fiction. It's something not fiction, <laughs> which is problematic, you know? But if we're gonna use that as our model, why couldn't it be not journalism? Or why couldn't it not be not scholarship or not poetry? So I'm gonna say, yeah, we got CNF, creative nonfiction. We've also got CNJ, creative non-journalism. We got CNS, and we got CNP. And why I'm bringing this up is that you were asking about an op-ed. In my opinion, there are things that are very much creative nonfiction that do employ scholarly work and do it in a beautiful way. Um, and that probably, a good op-ed, can be a kind of creative nonfiction that fits in there. Um, and similarly, the lyric essay is gonna tend to be in this camp. Um, if you wanna get really carried away and start talking about this being more the creative end of creative nonfiction and this more the nonfiction or fact end of the spectrum, and this being more of a narrative kind of impulse, and this one I'm not so sure about because poetry isn't always conceptual, but it's kind of fun to think about at least um, how they lean towards one or the other. Now, people who drew, um, let's start with this alteration. What's the point over here? Is that yours? Do you want to comment on this? different than the one we even drew in our process because you have found the form, so to speak, that brings these things together and the theme that pulls them together. Yeah, good, good point. Uh, what else do we have? We've got this drawing here. Who, who is, yeah.
this as well? Yeah. Once you've arrived there? Yeah. Very much. I think the process will then uh, reflect back on yeah. what has been uh, traveled through. Yeah. Which is why we have to go through it to then know what we're doing yeah. and go back through again somebody just put up, yeah? Yeah. Who's going to comment on this? Well, Sorry, I'm deaf in one ear. It's Peggy. Yes. Okay. Comment. What? Well, when I start, that's, I don't know where I'm going. That's just, every time I start, I'm going to get a different, totally different design. But the only thing in common would be to come out of the end with something leading talking about writer ver writer and reader? Uh, no, the uh, characters in the story. Okay. The lives and the culture and the uh -huh. um, and Chris's family certainly from the culture. And then what what ways are you going to get through the imagination, scenes, uh, memories, or uh, to bring connection metaphors, yeah. between them. related to what you're talking about. Janet Burway, when she talks about narrative, describes how sometimes it's more about connection and disconnection than about the typical plot line that we look for. And I like this as a chart of it with Raymond Carver's story, Cathedral, which you might know. Some of you may have read that. How many have read Cathedral? Beautiful story um, in which a man who is the narrator, uh, no, narrator's out here. Narr sorry. 
this is the way I would chart it. Narrator is a culture, it would seem, has a wife who is very disconnected from it, hence the distance between them, right? This is moving up with the tension in the story. This wife, why am I, I keep getting this. This is the wife, moving up. Um, there is a blind man who comes to visit the two of them. He is very removed from both of them because he resents that this blind man is a friend from the past who knows the wife very well. And besides, he's a blind man, you know, and he's, he's a bigot, so he doesn't want this weird guy coming to his house. These two are connected, he's not. Halfway through the story, something starts to change because this blind man, surprisingly, is kind of extending himself towards the narrator. And the narrator, to really diagram it well, I think we have to see a little bit of a shift. He starts to reach to, towards the blind man. And the wife, surprisingly, doesn't get it and maybe doesn't want the two of them to get close to each other because she wants to keep this guy. But she doesn't get it enough that she starts to drift off. She falls asleep on a couch. And by the end, the two of these are so connected that they put their hands together and they are drawing on a piece of paper, the blind man and the narrator. They're trying to draw a cathedral because the blind man says, it's on this TV program and he can't see it. Help me see it, bud. How does it work? You know, let's, I tell you what, let's draw it. And this guy's thinking, oh crap, he is so weird. But let's, okay, okay, you know. So he gets it and they start drawing together. And the blind man says, I can see it, man, I can see it. That's just a wonderful story that shows that, which is related to this, because they're getting through a barrier and finding connection. Now, you had a drawing that you put up. Do you want to come and talk to us about? It's so similar to your essay, which is what's intriguing, because this is how I see a really common personal essay form. And when you take some tiny experience, washing the dishes or something, but you start there. focus on it and write about it with such attention that I see as a kind of burnishing process so that you... Okay, the movement's that direction? Uh-huh. And that creates... This is where I want to go as an essayist. I want to go out beyond myself to a kind of universe of larger meaning, larger significance. But how do I get there from washing the dishes, for example, um, to create a bridge yeah. to larger meaning yeah. out of myself? I can only do it by using very concrete, specific <coughs> kind of things. And, and so that's, that's, isn't that interesting? It's very and similar to yours in a And Mope talks about it as particular, not verses, but and universal, right? Right that there's some very important connection in essays, and they will sometimes kind of throb. They'll move from particular out to universal, then they'll come back down to particular, then they'll go back out. We can almost feel them pulsing. Yeah, and, and then the other one here could be either an essay or a book, and I was thinking about your book, you know, and it's gonna have like three main themes going through it. Yeah. It's only got one. 
just five or six we need to pair down. But then, you know, where these things overlap are very powerful moments, almost like two uh, scenes of uh, work. And ideally, you know, they're in the beginning and then in the end. And I think that's why we so often write the beginning last, to set those up. Um, but I was thinking of your discussion of those chapters um, about that boy, friend, or something. I don't know about moral law versus free will. But the ones yeah. you had to leave out. Yeah. You know, you could not oh, the friend, attach Carrie them yeah. to one of these lines. Absolutely. You tried, you tried, you really liked them. Hopefully they'll work into some other piece in yeah. the future. But since, you know, you couldn't get them to fit onto one of these lines, they had to go for, uni for unity. So that's, that's how I see Very that. Very helpful. to my mind is Patricia Hample says that the, the engine of a personal narrative is consciousness, not experience. And what you're demonstrating is that he had a unique consciousness, a way of looking at things that sounds like he had uh, interest. He was a chemist. A chemist, a exactly. Chemist. And he brings that to what he's trying to write about. And that unique consciousness pulls us along because we're like, that's an unusual way to look at things. Um, and it's unifying. Um, and it's not, therefore, just about the experience, which is why some people who've had very dramatic experiences uh, never will publish a good book or a good story because it's not just about having raw experience. That's good news for all of us because a lot of us think, oh, you know, who would care about my story? Well, if you do have a unique voice and you're finding it, you're finding your point of view, then you will perhaps deliver an unusual way to think about and look at some experience that others have had. It's not just your property, but because you have a unique way of looking. I think we're needing to wrap up, right? Yeah. Okay. So we'll stop there, but we'll talk more.